1: Hello and welcome to the Raptors Over Everything podcast. I'm your host, Swam Lou. This episode, along with every episode this season, is brought to you by our sponsor, KFC. So on this week's show, we have a very, very special guest in Trevor Cole, a Canadian novelist and the author of a must-read profile on Masai Ujiri published in Toronto Life. Trevor, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. Um, so first off, how is the Toronto Tony of the Year Award decided? Like, is there a process? Oh, God,
2: I don't really know. I don't know their process at all. I, uh you know as a writer you get hired to do a um a story and uh, and uh, you're well outside the process <laughs> so um you know i think they have a uh, i think uh, i'm guessing really but they have a group of editors and advisors who probably sit down and and draw up the list and i think uh it has to do um with how big an impact on the city the cultural life mm-hmm. um that individual has and it's neither necessary it's not necessarily bad nor good right uh Doug Ford was number one last year all right this year he's number two so that's an indication that you know it's not magazine is not necessarily saying you're the best person Mm-hmm. you know, uh, influence, but, um, uh, influence is, is, uh, you know, the criteria. So in this, in this case, Masai was, was, had clearly risen above everyone else. Yeah. I was gonna say this question almost sounds dumb now that I'm
1: asking it because you won an NBA championship the first in like 25 years for Toronto. Uh, it's pretty deserving. Um, so what was it like to work with Masai on the story? Uh,
2: you well, know. you know, he, um, he didn't have a lot of time for for us. Um, uh, and when I say us, I, I mean I'm, uh, there were people uh, with the magazine um, who were reaching out to their people, uh, Masai's people, like the, the teams' people. Jennifer Quinn being the, the main person, the main contact uh, as the media person for the Raptors. And Masai was in Africa. For uh, the entirety of the summer, it felt like, as the story was developing, Mm -hmm. we were just waiting for him to come back. Right. And when he came back, he wanted to dive right into the work Mm -hmm. of, you know, working on the team. So we had to fit ourselves in. Right. And uh, and also, I think he was, as I sort of mentioned or alluded to in the piece, he was a bit wary Mm. of... A kind of in-depth piece. He I don't think he's ever had anything like this written about him before. Right. And uh, you know, I think I think he's inherently private, so he didn't want to give me a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And that is typical for people in the sports world. Uh, I've done a lot of stories on on sports figures, and they don't like to open up very mm-hmm. much. Um. So uh, that's not always true for executives. It's a little unusual for executives. And, uh, and so, but Masai is, I think, um, uh, different from, from many uh, executives. So I think he was feeling shy and, and private. And uh, so I ended up having about two hours with him overall. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, it was about an hour. It was scheduled. Our first interview was scheduled to be an hour. Um, and we I had negotiated, I wanted lots, mm-hmm. I asked for lots and then I get what I get. But, um, I had negotiated essentially one interview plus a, plus a, hopefully a second follow-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I managed to, to stretch that first interview to about an hour and a half. And then I, uh, I did phone follow-ups with him right. and then, and then I, I did negotiate the session in the basket or the, uh, boxing um, training session that he had. Right, right. Wow,
1: that that's it's very surprising to hear. It feels like you spent like a week with him or something. Well, you got into a lot of details that I don't think anyone has ever um, at least publicly known about Masai.
2: Yeah, well, and, and that has a lot to do with talking to other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when you're waiting for the main subject to make himself available, um, you spend a lot of time f- going around um, the people in mm-hmm. his life trying and. Trying to tap those wells for information. Mm-hmm. Um so his best friend uh from Africa who uh, who now lives in the States uh was hugely helpful. That was Dennis. Right, right. Um uh, his wife, Ramatu, was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh she she opened up a lot of um uh insight into their personal life and um, just some of the things that, that Messiah was was working through as he was uh, sort of rising up, mm-hmm. and uh, so that was hugely helpful. So it, I'm glad it feels as though I spent a lot of time with him, and and you know I I'm I'm grateful to all the people who did share. Um, and why did you take on this project? Are, are you a Raptors fan? Or were you intrigued by Messiah? I have been a Raptors fan. Okay. I, you know, I've I followed the team from the beginning, and I've had and I my my. Uh, Fandom with the Raptors has has uh, waxed and waned. Mm -hmm. I uh, naturally when they
0: yeah Uh, lose like
2: sixty games in a season. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah.
2: And there's there's uh, there are times when um, you know I was very I I was a big Damon Stoudemire fan, Mm -hmm. Um, but um, since Masai's arrival, uh, I have been fascinated by him by his by his um, his presence. In the city, and and just how what a striking figure he he is uh, at the top of a team. He's he's got a kind of a a fascinating energy to him, Mm -hmm. and um, there's a purity to him. He doesn't seem conniving, or uh, he doesn't seem like a wheeler dealer, right? Which is rare for
1: executives, especially. Yeah, he
2: comes at you in a very straight, pure um sincere way and and uh, so that is interesting Mm -hmm. and so when I I was I was approached by Toronto Life to do the story and I I I haven't been doing a lot of magazine work uh, lately because I've been doing more book uh, work and uh, but I leapt at this opportunity I thought it was too good to pass up I really wanted to know more about this guy
1: right right and I, I gotta say as you know
2: as someone that operates
1: sort of in this space, uh, I think I speak for every single writer in the city. <laughs> yeah. uh, everyone wants to profile Masai. So we are all incredibly jealous. That oh, time. wow. Uh, we're very happy that uh, you took this on and, and you, you did this thing uh, justice, definitely. So Thank you. So let, let's start at the beginning of um, Masai's life where, you know, you mentioned earlier his best friend, Dennis, um, sort of what role did he play in sort of Masai's upbringing? I think there was a couple of stories that, that yeah. you shared in the piece.
2: Well, so Masai, uh, his family had moved. His father's Nigerian, his mother's Kenyan. They had gone to England mm-hmm. um, uh, for uh, his father's education, and then Masai was born. And they were—he was ten months or nine months old when they arrived back in okay. Africa. Okay. Okay. And so he didn't meet Dennis initially. They lived in a hospital in. Uh, uh, um. Now I'm blanking on the, uh, Usasa, uh, the uh, village of Usasa. Uh, they had a, a hospital there, and his mother was a hospital administrator. So mm-hmm. th- they, uh, or no, his, fa- his mother was a doctor, his father was a hospital uh, administrator. So they lived in the hospital mm-hmm. uh, while Masai was a toddler. Mm-hmm. And then by the time he was seven or eight or nine, they, they moved to a village uh, called Samaru uh, on the edge of Z- uh, Zaria in um, Nigeria. And that's when he met Dennis. Mm -hmm. And Dennis uh, had polio. He was stricken with polio as a, as a child. So he was paralyzed on one side and his other side was, was, uh, weakened. Mm -hmm. So he was in a wheelchair, he used crutches. And, uh, for some reason, Masai was, was very, um, he was a he was a naturally compassionate kid, right? And he and and Dennis became fast friends. And, and uh, you know, Masai was was able bodied. He was very very skinny, mm-hmm. um, and he's still quite skinny. His his legs are still quite thin. But um, uh, as a boy, uh, he was he was very skinny. But he 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 was well to do in in the, in the in in relationship to other kids that he was playing with he had a his family was a little bit more well off than many because right. of the um, Profession. professions yeah. of his parents so so messiah always had the, the ball mm-hmm. whenever they were playing a sport usually soccer at that point um, it was messiah's ball they were playing with right and when you have the ball you get to set the rules so uh, dennis had been excluded much of his life to that point uh, from the sports that he saw all, his, all the other kids playing but mm-hmm. but Messiah wanted him included right so Messiah appointed him as the as the goalkeeper because he he couldn't run mm-hmm. Dennis couldn't run so uh, standing goal and and he actually taught um, Dennis how to how to favor his one side because one side was weaker than the other mm-hmm. so the uh, other players would always attack. With the ball, attacked his weak side. So, Masai taught him how to right. um, counteract that, and uh, and they they grew up together. They were a real team. Um, uh, they they collected pigeons. They flew kites together.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, uh, Dennis, I didn't get into it much in the story, but Dennis was quite fierce. Oh, by, okay. by by the uh, By the time he and Masai became real real buddies. Dennis, because of the bullying that he had experienced, uh, uh, as a polio victim, he had learned how to use his, uh, he, he wore a brace on, on one leg and he had, he learned how to use that as a weapon. He would swing <laughs> his leg around and, and, um, uh, anybody who was, who was trying to be mean to him, he, he took care of them quickly. And so he actually would sometimes stick up for Masai when Masai wow. was getting bullied. Wow. Um, And they would, uh, they had a drama club that they would go to that was like 20 kilometers away um, after school. And so they would often share a bike. And Mm -hmm. um, Masai would use one leg, and Dennis would use the best, uh, I can't remember which side it was. I think it was his right side, was his good side. Um, So he would use that side to bike, uh, to to pedal, and Masai would use his other leg to pedal. And so they would combine as they were for 20 kilometers. Um, Yeah yeah that, that I mean
1: that I think from an early age I, I think that really speaks to sort of the, the quality
2: of human the Messiah
1: is really it really does yeah. it did
2: and um, there was another friend named Gideon who's right. uh, um, a, a, a devout uh, devoutly religious uh, from a devout, devoutly religious family and he he came up with a nickname for Messiah very early on Um which was the boy is good.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So whenever Masai did anything, Gideon would say the boy is good, and he would just right. repeat that phrase wow. all, and and it became a name for Masai. The boy is good. He would walk mm-hmm. in, and and that seemed to get at something else about Masai—not just that he was talented with um, sports, but that he, there was some quality to him that that uh, that was good in a way that um, you don't normally find in a and a kid
1: right right um and so you mentioned you know Masai uh, played a bit of basketball himself mm-hmm. was not uh, particularly good
2: he wanted to be he wanted to be good he learned how to how to play from um uh, uh coach uh, obj right oliver b johnson uh who was a a um a Peace Corps worker who had arrived in Nigeria and set up basketball uprights and started coaching kids. And so Masai, when he was uh, 11 or 12, came along and wanted to learn this new game. Right. So he learned basketball, and he fell in love with it and and had big ambitions. Yeah. He really wanted to, to be an NBA player. And so he, he worked really hard, and he got to uh, prep school in Seattle, um, and then he, uh, you know, of course, you're trying for a, a university or college uh, um, spot, and he didn't get a good prime college spot. He no. only got into a junior college. I think and, it was Bismarck University, yeah, which and, would be very difficult to find. Yeah, and that was uh, his first sign that he probably wasn't going to make it in the NBA. Right. And uh, he did. He did get to play professionally in Europe. He started uh, in England on the uh, playing for Derby. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, something else I couldn't get into in the piece: Nick Nurse uh, coached uh, in that same league. So he actually Nick Nurse wow. coached against Masai when when Masai was a really young player.
1: Wow. Okay. I'm gonna go ask Nick Nurse at practice. Yeah, the next time I see him, uh, what
2: Masai was like as a player. Um, and uh, so Masai played for several different teams in the European League, uh, not the best league, but mm-hmm. the lower league. And uh, you know he did as well as he could with with the talents that he had. He worked really hard. And but then eventually he just had to had to quit. He wasn't. Mm-hmm. He he uh, got bounced from his fifth or sixth team, and that was it for him. Right.
1: But you know it kind of. In a roundabout way, it kind of served him because um, the way Masai came up in his career as an executive was through scouting. And he knew, uh, obviously, the European ranks a little bit because he had played there. And also, he had a lot of connections uh, throughout the continent of Africa. And so, it it very much felt like Masai, at that point, did what he could. and, And what he could at the time was sort of scout. And you mentioned... You know uh, David Thorpe, who uh, used to be at ES- ESPN, and mm-hmm. I think now he's uh, with True Hoop, uh, which sort of branched off from ESPN. But uh, David sort of played a, a big role in sort of just sort of bringing
2: Masai up. You know, yeah, you kind
1: of need to know somebody to get in.
2: Masai had a had one skill above all, and that was his ability to meet people and and charm people. Mm-hmm. He he has a, has a he has a gift at. Because he's so sincere and honest, he just connects in instantly with people. So he had gone out of his way to meet David Thorpe a couple of years earlier uh, because he wanted to... He knew, he saw his path was probably going to be in the front office of, of a basketball team. So he he met uh, David, and David was somebody who coached, uh, developed young players to, to ready them to, for the draft. That right. was his main function at the time. And... So he was coaching a friend of Masai's. So Masai arrived, and, and th- just to thank him at some mm-hmm. tournament, and um, and David gave him his card. And then, so two years later, when Masai was now out of playing, right, he called David and asked what to do. He wanted to get into the front offices of of the NBA, and uh, David advised him, "Well, he's, you have to meet people, Masai." So he was going to be going to uh, the final 4 in Atlanta uh that uh within a month i think of that point and he david said come uh to atlanta find a place to stay and then I'll, I'll, I'll introduce you around and so that weekend uh masai met a whole bunch of people and made contacts with about 20 different uh teams um and uh from that eventually came um a position scouting, I think it was for the Magic, um, uh, on a volunteer v- basis. Uh, he, uh, you know, he just he finagled his way into um, a position which gave him credentials so that he could travel all around the world mm-hmm. as a scout for uh, for the Magic. But he wasn't being paid, right, right? So he had to he had to do that on his own dime. And, uh, and he hoped for the best. He kept spending and saving his receipts and hoped that the team would, would reimburse him. And, uh, and they didn't really that well. Um, so he was. I think was, you mentioned
1: that they gave him a, a check
2: for $3,000. $3,000. And is he just probably spent 10 times that. Yeah. And, uh, and so he was, uh, devastated when he got that check. But, um, but he had, he had, you know, through his, traveling uh he had met uh, still more people and he was developing this reputation as a guy who knew players mm-hmm. uh knew you know was it was a really quick study of talent and character and so he started to um get, get gain this reputation as this as this young up-and-comer and uh and that's what led to a, a paid position with the nuggets right exactly and
1: um i actually didn't realize this i mean You know, Masai's obviously big announcement into the NBA um, was obviously when he traded Carmelo. I I didn't realize this until I read the piece, but that was the first trade he had ever executed. Yeah, he had never
2: done a trade before.
1: That's incredible (laughs) because he did really, really well on that trade. The Nuggets, I think, uh, were one of the top two or three seeds in in, in the division that year. Um, And, of course, Masai won Executive of the Year. And so, you know... The thing with Masai is oddly enough, the the Raptors had Masai sort of in the organization long before, uh, you know, he had
2: to gone to Denver and then had to come back. He was that's right. Yeah. He he came in as a scouting coordinator, right, and uh, international scouting coordinator uh, for uh, working for Brian Colangelo. Mm-hmm. Brian Colangelo met him at um at an uh, at a, an event or um uh I think it was a combine. And tapped him on the shoulder and said, we'd like you to come work for the Raptors. Wow. And uh, at that time, Brian Colangelo was a big deal uh, in the NBA, mm-hmm. and he had just won Executive of the Year. So right. um, that was a pretty plum um, gig for, for Masai. So he came to Toronto. He lived downtown. He walked everywhere. And and he worked really hard, right. to um, to give uh, Colangelo all the information that he needed. He uh, you know he sweated, and he he stayed up, you know he slept very little, mm-hmm. um, to be the the best um, right hand that 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 Colangelo could have. So he eventually uh, shifted from scouting to assistant GM. And um, and then he was tabbed to go to uh, back to, to Denver as uh, as GM. Yeah, and I got to say, you know, I, I think Colangelo definitely had this
1: reputation in Toronto um, where he made more of an emphasis as compared to the regular uh, executive in terms of looking abroad for talent. I think one That's of right. Colangelo's first years he came here, you know, he, he drafted uh, André Bernani, number one overall, and he signed Jose Calderon, and, and Anthony Parker at the time was playing, I think, in Israel. And so... And, and Jorge
2: Garbosa as well. Don't forget him. And the yeah.
1: Estevez. Actually, there's a lot of yeah. teams on the team. And it's
2: likely I didn't get into this with Masai, but it's likely Masai had a lot of influence over a lot of those decisions. Right. Yeah. And they,
1: and they were great pieces. Like the, the Raptors uh, made the playoffs. I think they won a the division for the first time, and that was a big deal at the time. Nowadays, winning the division is kind of a, a foregone conclusion. But so uh, Masai goes to Denver. Uh, he he does well there, and then. It takes Tim Laiwiki, who is sort of this, uh, I'm very fascinated by this man because mm-hmm. it's almost like he, he was only here for a very short time. He made he was like, a, he, he hit Toronto like a bomb. It really was, but yeah. it, I think it, it really did kind of like, it's like a, a forest fire and you burn everything. And then all of a sudden you can just have things grow from it. You look at TFC and of course the Raptors, you know, yeah,
2: key, low is really interesting. And he, he gave me a lot of time, mm-hmm. um, uh, you don't see it in the piece, but but there's a lot of Lewicky behind um, some of the insights in there because he gave me a lot of time, and he was um, he was a real force. He came in like a hurricane, cleaned out all of the deadwood out of out of MLSE, uh, which had become this this horrible complacent place right. where you know uh, as long as you made money, you didn't have to win, and mm. um, it was just depressing and. He came in with this reputation as being a winner, and he had won in L.A. Uh, in various different sports, and he came in and he just, as you say, set fire to the whole thing okay. and um, and changed it almost overnight, changed mm-hmm. the culture. Mm-hmm. And and one of the main tools, weapons that he used to change it was Maasai right. coming into hiring Masai to come in and, and do that for the Raptors. And uh, it was profound. Masai gave him a list of 14 people because he had been here before, so he knew the the the, the landscape mm-hmm. yep. uh, within MLSE. He knew the people he could work with and the people he couldn't. And so he gave Tim a list of 14 people that he wanted gone before he arrived. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so did, he did that in one day. And uh, the Messiah well, came in. that been a hell of a day. Yeah, <laughs> and then he came in and he and he uh, he brought these these uh, four young um, executives or three. Uh, um, Bobby, no, it was four: Bobby Webster, uh, Teresa Resch, uh, Dan Holtzman, and uh, um, oh, Jeff Waltman. Jeff Waltman, thank you. Right, him, right. Who was here for a brief time and then left to be a GM himself mm. of the Magic. Um, and so these were his guys and he used, uh, they, they, they have this really interesting chemistry, Mm -hmm. uh, as a, as a group of executives and Masai, you know, typical for Masai, he says they're all smarter than I am. Right. Uh, but I, I, I have to make the decisions, but, but, um, he really, uh, respects, highly respects the input that he gets from these people.
1: Right. For sure. And I think there's a real kinship, like, um, you know, you mentioned in the piece when, it was funny that the Raptors ran into uh, Weltman's magic, yeah, in, in the playoffs last year, and you, you, you mentioned you know. there's that lovely moment, yeah, yeah.
2: when, uh, yeah, because Masai is, uh, uh, he's a, he's he's kind of, he feels like he's a friend first kind of guy he right for sure. he makes he makes connections and and he has a lot of affection to sh- to give to people and so weltman is one of those people that that he's very affectionate towards but he but that especially in the world of sport uh, mm. but but particularly you don't see it so much on the executive side but but that that for Maasai, that affection comes with a lot of barbs you know right. you're you're he's He's swearing and joking oh, and, yeah, yeah. and cutting uh, as part of that, and um, and he was doing that with Weltman. But um, yeah, uh, you can see you can see how when when Masai meets someone mm-hmm. that he knows well, there's a big smile that comes on his face right. and uh, uh, an embrace. You know, he's he connects with people.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure, and. Uh... I gotta say, I mean, he, I mean, Waltman got a, a promotion to go to the Magic, and, and typically speaking, if you get a promotion in in the NBA or whatever, you know, it's sort of standard practice just let them walk. Somehow, Masai got uh, a second round pick, and in, in when Waltman went to the Magic, and in return, and that second round pick uh, made it into the Marcus All trade. So, well, there
2: you go. That's pretty impressive. Yes, he, it is. He
1: turned an executive in, in in part into Marcus Um so then, you know, Masai, obviously, he comes to Toronto. The Raptors are immediately successful. Uh, they win, but they're not a playoff-caliber uh, team. I mean, you know, they, they run into LeBron a lot of times, but also they just weren't that good in the playoffs. And so, you know, um, last summer, I guess, or, or it was the last time. I guess it was just last summer. Wow, it feels like forever. Um, he has to make major yeah, changes. Yeah, right, two summers ago. Yeah, Two summers ago. Yeah, that's right. Um, he has to make major changes. And, uh, you know, obviously... Kawhi Leonard is, is is a big addition. But also, I think a, a very key, key move was that Masai had to fire the uh, reigning coach of the year in Dwayne Casey, who he considered, uh, he, he said it was one of the hardest things he's ever had to do. Yeah,
2: Masai considered uh, Dwayne a, a fatherly figure. And mm. he said something interesting to me, interesting to me um, which, again, not everything gets into the story. But he he said to me at one point, I adore people who aren't vindictive, and and Dwayne Casey was one of these people who who never uh, never held a grudge. Mm. You could have a real knockdown, dragout fight with him over something, and ten minutes later it would be forgotten. That's and and Masai really loved that about uh, Dwayne Casey, and so uh, it it was a very um, difficult thing for him to do. But there's also a sense, you know. Uh, Fred Van Vliet said to me that that uh, he's cutthroat. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a there is a an element of Messiah that is that is ruthless. It sounds wrong to to, to apply to Messiah because he's such a sweet man. Mm-hmm. But but there is a, a steel to him right. in terms of his direction uh, and and the decisions he's willing to make. That that is you know not apparent but it's there mm-hmm. and uh and so that came into play with with this um this firing of of casey it had to be done there was something about the way the team was playing it was playing scared right. in the playoffs right and he had to find somebody to to take that fear away and mm-hmm. to give them um uh, a sense of of uh, Ability and and fearlessness, and mm-hmm. so the two big components of that were Kawhi Leonard and Nick Nurse. Right, right. Uh, DeMar DeRozan was playing scared in the playoffs, and by yep. replacing him with with Kawhi, he, he who doesn't got, feel any emotion whatsoever. <laughs> right, he got fearlessness on the court, and yep. in Nick Nurse, he had fearlessness uh, in in the coaching um, on the bench, and mm-hmm. your Nurse has a real swagger to him. Yes, in a way that Casey never had. Right, uh, right. When I interviewed Nick Nurse for the story, uh, he did it most of it with his feet up on his desk, okay. um, and uh, uh, feeling very good about himself. You know, he just <laughs> was wanted... he wearing his signature NN hat? I, I, I think he might have been. Yeah, yeah he. Uh, um, you know, he just won a championship, so he Fair he uh, he earned it, and um, uh, you know, he's got a real a real presence.
1: Yeah, I was surprised about that with Nick Nurse because when he was an assistant and stuff like that, I mean, obviously, it's, it's a less empowering role when you're the assistant, but it, it never really did feel like he had that um,
2: presence about him. And then yeah, in the years since, I mean... Well, from- he knew his place as an as assistant. Right, right. And in the interview with, with um, the executives, when they were first interviewing him at Hotel X to see whether he'd be given the job, um, you know, they... Th- they were they, at that point. Mm-hmm. The execs were quite frustrated. Right. Versai and and Teresa and Dan and uh, and Bobby were all um, um, a little bit uh, on edge after having been swept again, and they just fired Dwayne. And so they were they were they were not happy people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of that came out initially in the interview with with Nick Nurse. Um, there was a bit of you know because Nick had various ideas, right. About how the team could be coached differently. And they were like, well, why didn't yeah, that yeah, happen? So you were right there. And, <laughs> and so, but, but as Nick said, well, I wasn't the coach. I was yeah. an assistant and right. that wasn't my place. Fair but enough. now that if you, you know, give me the chance, uh-huh. this is what I'll do. And he's really changed things.
1: Yeah, he has. Um, I, I think the biggest difference between Nick and Dwayne in terms of their styles of coaching, Dwayne was always very, uh, Reactive. He had a plan. His team was going to go into it. And generally speaking, he wasn't going to make any changes to that plan unless things were going really awry. Whereas Nick is very much like a proactive guy. Like second quarter, he'll see us like, all right, the Raptors are down eight. We're playing zone for the next five minutes. We'll just, we'll just change it up. We'll just right. change it up on you. Warriors. Very
2: adaptable, very, yeah. very willing to try things on the fly.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and try daring things yeah. too. Because a boxing one in the NBA finals, like that could easily go poorly. And then all of a sudden people are like, what are you doing? You just throw a game away in the finals by playing With, a high school defense. That's right. Yes, that's right.
2: right. David, David Thorpe told me, you know, uh, he was pretty sure that, that, um, you know, the people, the players on the, on, on, um, the Warriors, had probably hadn't seen that defense in years, ever, and so they yeah. were so they were completely the thrown by it.
1: That's right, that's right, and and it worked really well. Um, and then, so of course, as you mentioned, the the, the two prongs of that there's the, there's the Kawhi trade. Um, I think people don't really, when they look at sports, they're just like, well, of course, you would trade Demar Derozan for Kawhi Leonard. In retrospect, it's such an obvious decision. At the time, though, I, I remember the reaction to it was was really really harsh. There was a press conference that Masai did. Where, you know, there's a lot of cameras or whatever and there's bright lights and you know, whatever. But at the same time, you Masai was just like sweating profusely and he felt so terrible about the whole thing. He felt like he had to apologize to DeMar DeRozan. And of course, you know, it's raw when you got to trade a guy and things like that. But, you know, it wasn't an easy sell is what I was trying to say. Right. I mean, And not just in terms of to the fan base who obviously loved DeMar, but also even to ownership because the Raptors had never paid the luxury tax before. Right? Right. And he was suddenly asking them to pay like $160 million. And also uh, trade a lot of security in Demar for just uh, the ultimate question mark in Kawhi.
2: Well, very it was very, very much what the sort of thing an MLSE never did. Yes, which was definitely. to take a huge leap to to jettison um, uh, somebody who professed to love playing in Toronto, uh, who was a security uh, kind of a security blanket in Demar Derozan, um, who was a who who was a talented but a proven you know a, a, a player proven to have difficulty in the in right. the playoffs, but um a really easy guy to like and mm-hmm. to be and to and to settle with yep uh to 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 trade him away and to bring in a maybe you know mm-hmm. and the and and, and, a, and a maybe if it worked it would be spectacular mm-hmm. but there was a good chance that it wouldn't work right and that was the kind of gamble that mlsc was traditionally uh, you know prone to avoid but you know Masai he you know he he says he doesn't consider risk he doesn't think about it he it was the right thing to do mm-hmm. and um so he didn't hesitate yeah
1: it also really strikes me every time i hear about it that uh while this deal was going down and obviously these deals don't just like someone calls someone and they're like hey do you want to trade? oh like, yeah sure let's do it right it's it's not fantasy basketball uh these things definitely take time to to build and masai he's he was so you know sort of uh devoted to his cause and and he was in kenya opening a school with uh barack obama and also barack obama's sister mm-hmm. uh at the time of the trade uh, you, you know it's it's such an important thing but you know obviously Masai uh, had his convictions and you know and he pulled it off um
2: he knew he had people here to to carry it out as well you know bobby y- webster was was sort of the the front man on that right, uh, right. on that deal but of course uh, it all comes down to Masai's decision and um, but yeah, I mean, that's one of the great things about Masai is that he's larger than basketball. You know, really there's, is. there's something more, He he's interested in the greater thing, mm-hmm. you know, the greater good and the greater picture. Um, he's always thinking about, um, other people. Right. Right. Um, and then of course, you know, Kawhi, uh, the
1: Raptors won a championship. The best moment of the playoffs was the shot by Kawhi, um,
2: Against Philadelphia, yeah. yeah.
1: I always, I always find it weird that most executives don't just like watch in a specific spot. They really do like move around, talk to people. Brian Colangelo used to always stand in a tunnel with his very large collars, and I think actually Masai <laughs> kind of did the same thing. He did he, until he it
2: until it became impossible for him because people were always uh, pestering him. When, right. while he stood there, so. people weren't pestering Brian Colangelo. Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently not the same way.
1: I would heckle him with, uh, Frank Flanigan in <laughs> that situation. Um, so yeah, I mean, Masai, so because Masai was, uh, because you know, executives are sort of uh, you know nervy and things like this, um, it was he almost kind
2: of missed the moment, right? Yeah, he uh, he yeah he, he was very close to missing the moment. He came. He was on. He had watched the first half of the game mm-hmm. from the video room, and then he went up for the second half. He went upstairs to his office on the fifteenth floor. Um, at uh, the stadium and um, at the arena, and uh, he watched most of the second half on the fifteenth floor. And then it was like literally just seconds to go, and the Raptors were up by three. And it looked because it was they were now into trading foul shots back yeah, and yeah. forth. It looked pretty secure. Definitely. Kawhi just had to hit both free throws, and the game and was, it over. was done. Yeah. yeah. And so he. Uh, took off uh, down the uh, elevator to to be able to be in position mm-hmm. at the side of the court when they won, and in that time, in the in the fifteen seconds or so that it took f- for the elevator to descend, those uh, you know, Masai or uh, Kawhi missed one of his free throws, and uh, uh, Philadelphia had scored three points, and so it was a tie game, and and there's this wonderful scene that that Masai reenacted for me in his office when he was walking the elevator doors open he's walking toward the court and he's he sees directly into the video room and um somebody said to uh, somebody who was standing next to him i can't believe this is happening to us again (laughs) And but Masai didn't actually hear that. He he read his lips right. and he saw what what that man had said.
1: That's probably more frightening than what yeah, he's yeah. he hearing.
2: Yeah. And then he and then he lowered his the the man lowered his <laughs> head and hit his eyes with his hand. I can't believe this is happening to us again. Right. And so, you know, Masai stormed into the media room and, and demanded to know what the hell happened mm-hmm. and uh Then he just waited, along with the rest of us, watching what was going to happen next. Yeah, and then,
1: you know, Kawhi hits the shot. Um, You know, the Raptors go on to squeak by Philly, uh, go down 0-2 against Milwaukee, uh, and then basically sweep them from there on, actually. Pretty pretty incredible turnaround there. Uh, And then go to Golden State. It was, you know, they win the championship on the road, um, you know, did Masai talk to you at all about
2: sort of that incident that happened? He or- did. Uh, he was very reluctant. The, right. they were talking about what happened off the court, uh, when he was trying to get to the court after, uh, they won the game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he was stopped by this, this, uh, deputy sheriff, um, in Oakland. And at the time we interviewed, uh, that was still, the decision was still pending from the right. Oakland, um, DA, and... Those charges, by the way, have officially been dropped. They've officially been dropped, although there is still a chance that there will be a civil suit. That's still a possibility. Okay, all right. Um, And so Masai talked to me a bit about it, and his uh, wife Ramatu talked to me a bit about it, but they were very reluctant to have any of that, so it was all off the record. Of course, of course. Um, They didn't want to have any of that um, printed because they didn't want to um bias the case or, or affect decisions being made mm. but he was obviously upset I asked him at one point if he you know to look back on his life and to if he could name uh, one of the darkest moments of his life mm-hmm. and he said that that was the moment he would name that you know and, it's unbelievable. and which is it's terrible to think that he had just won the championship yeah and his team he he'd achieved everything he'd been working for right it should have been the happiest moment of his life of course of course and and then he uh this happens and it and it's turned on a dime instantly to be this horrible thing mm-hmm. and so i I felt very um upset for him right uh, when right. I was watching it and um and then in a- asking people about it uh, and him specifically mm-hmm uh, he was obviously very, very hurt uh, and, and upset by it. But he's managed to move on from it. It didn't take mm-hmm. him that long to, to move on.
1: I think the next day he, he had flown back to Toronto on a private jet and, and was at the graduation of his, like, I don't know, five, like, yeah. grade five daughter or something yeah. like that. Yeah, it's incredible. I don't
2: think he slept. In... <laughs> Probably not,
1: no. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, it was, obviously, there was a lot of pandemonium, you know, when the NBA Finals um, wraps up. There's like a ton of people storming the court. There's photographers, uh, you know, journalists, cameras, everything. There's like probably like, I don't know, 500 people that take the court. And it's just, it's very difficult in that situation, I think, to even sort of just corral people. But at the same time, we're talking about Masai Jiri. a very, I think, I, I, you should know. You should know who that man is. Absolutely. my by name. And also, if you had his credentials job in his is- hand.
2: Yeah, exactly. So. If your job is, your, your, your job as deputy sheriff is to right. be security uh, around the court, you want to know who the, who the yeah. important people are. Yeah. And, and, now, if, in fact, because one of the claims is that he didn't have the right credentials, well, somebody, if that's true, mm-hmm. somebody's head should roll for that, of course. for him not having the right credentials. Of course. Because it's not his decision. It's, it's actually not his shown job. It's in actually in
1: a separate video that Messiah is holding the credential in his hand. He's not even yeah. wearing it on his neck. He's holding it and on his hand. And that's something he
2: would always do. He would right. hold the credentials in his hand. Right. And so, as he's striding for the, for the court, I'm mm-hmm. sure he's holding this up for anybody who's coming at him asking right. for credentials. Right. And he can't can't understand why he's being stopped. Right. So, um, yeah. Luckily, uh, the, they dropped the the charges. But mm. uh, I, I think that there is still um, some something may still occur with that with that deputy sheriff, unless he's to, um, somebody talks him out of it. Right. Um, well, I mean, Messiah just had to win another championship.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then you know. The summertime, obviously, a lot of that was uh, I don't know, dominated by the negotiations with Kawhi Leonard, who ultimately decided to go. Um, first off, I mean, did he did you
2: did he talk to you at all about how the negotiations went? Or he anything didn't like give me very much on that. Right. He he was very uh, closed close to his chest on that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I I've heard that he offered him uh, a bunch of stuff, but uh, I I got the sense from him. That he wasn't going to go um, to the ends of the earth to convince Kawhi to stay. That uh, you know he 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 knew what he had in Toronto, and uh, he knew what kind of support he had and mm-hmm. and the the system that had allowed him to succeed. Yeah, and uh, he, and of course money wasn't going to be an issue, so. You know, uh, at that point, it's really you just have to have faith that the person will make the right decision. Right. And and as and as Masai said, he just decided he wanted to go home, mm-hmm. and he can't really fight that. You know, if somebody wants to go home, yeah. So um, uh, so he made that decision. But I I, I get the sense, you know, this team is very resilient. Right. Uh, it's 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 filled with players that are um, that have reserves of of character and. Um and talent and uh, I th- so far at least they they seem to be doing quite well. Yeah, I think
1: it's a real testament to what the Raptors have built as an organization that you can lose a star like that and it still goes on. You look at like a situation like Cleveland, which happened very recently. You know, you have a team that wins a championship and it's built largely around LeBron, but then once LeBron leaves, it, it they're just it collapses. They're just they have nothing left. Yes, yeah, and nothing works. And so I, I think
2: um, that's because he he took. He was more than a player on that team. Right? That's right. He right. He, um, he took a lot more of the uh, um, the power, mm-hmm. and so by by removing himself from that, he's really created a vacuum there. Right. Um, whereas Kawhi was cl- were clearly um, a significant player on the court, but but the rest of the team uh, was very strong, and mm-hmm. and the Nick Nurse the system that Nick Nurse has created on on the court is very strong. They have a fascinating right. Um, A system for accountability. Yeah, uh, working with the players, Um, and uh, and so you know it's it's uh, it's a solid Mm -hmm. um, functioning unit. Um, But and
1: you know Masai has talked about it himself as well. Uh, I remember him. There was the end of the season press conference, and obviously it was you know great time. Masai obviously is a very uh, magnetic speaker, Mm -hmm. and so that press conference went on for like over an hour. Which is un- unusual. <laughs> they would mostly mostly go like ten minutes. Uh, at the end, you know, at like the fifty eight minute mark, maybe uh, someone comes in with the trophy and puts it on the desk. Messiah's like, "Oh, this, yeah, this, this is just mine. <laughs> you know, no big deal." And, and during the course of that, you know, he spent he spoke he spoke about many things. You know, he said, "Oh, you know, Manchester United or Liverpool, you know, we're the new Reds in Toronto." And I was like, as a Liverpool fan, you know, it's, it's still a little bit ways to go, but I, I like the ambition there. Um, but one of the things Messiah talked about in that press conference was, you know he was very close with Kawhi and he was he became close with Uncle Dennis as well uh, who you know is is Kawhi's uncle and also manages most of his uh, you know financials and things like that and it seemed very much like he had built that bond and then you also wrote in the piece that um, his son Masai Jr. was actually friends with Kawhi's daughter as well Mm -hmm. which so
2: there was really a bond between the two families yeah they're very i mean these are these are young kids and uh they spent so it was indication of how much time the family spent together Mm -hmm. that that these two young kids uh messiah's son's nickname is ding ding Mm-hmm. And uh, Kawhi's daughter uh, just ran around her house all the time talking about Ding Ding, mm-hmm. um, to the point that Kawhi was irritated. Why is this? Why is my daughter talking about Ding Ding all the time? Uh-huh. Um, but it was just an indication to me of, of how tight the families had gotten right, over right. the course of just one year, mm-hmm. and and the kind of bond that happens off the court that we don't really see. Right. Um, which which you would think could have influenced. The decision of of Kawhi in in a positive way, if right, he had chosen to stay, just you know, wasn't enough to counteract the decision to go home.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, and you even wrote the piece Masai's wife. Um, you know, talked to so, so "Hey, listen, you, you can go or you can leave, whatever, but uh, my my son's going to marry your daughter." Which that's right. It's it's just an incredible thing. Yeah. Um,
2: that's uh, apparently, um, yeah, people have, uh, online, people have tweeted that, that section of the story. They, that has really touched a nerve with people.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very gripping. And then, you know, ultimately, I think, I think if you sort of zoom back out, um, you know, f- from your account of Maasai, uh, Maasai comes across very much as sort of a man of the people. Very, he comes across as sort of a man of character, but that he's also not afraid of doing what he feels is right. And sometimes right. that is ruthless, as you mentioned, but. Yeah. I think the results kind of speak for themselves. And I think it's harder to, you know, knock a guy for it because he is very genuine in what he does.
2: He is. And, and you don't get the sense with, with Messiah that decisions are capricious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you get the sense that they are well thought out. And, you know, he has this really tight unit around him of, of executives and they thrash out everything. And so you know that decisions are coming from, um, uh a, you know, they're they're born of a lot of thought a lot of consideration and messiah himself um uh just you 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 get the sense that he's doing things for the right reasons mm-hmm. there's you know he's not he's not vindictive he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't make decisions because of some personal agenda right it's always about what's what's best for the team mm-hmm. and um you, the team, are, the Raptors, are really in good hands as long as he's here. Right, and you, we just have to hope that, that that's for a long time.
1: Right, and you mentioned you know the Wizards tried to poach him.
2: They offered did pretty much the world. They and, did. Uh, they kept coming back. Apparently, uh-huh. now this is all unofficial through through um, you know back channels. Right. Nothing was ever done officially. Sure, sure. But uh, they kept coming back with more and more to <laughs> get uh, Masai to, to, to make the leap. Well, I mean, and, there was reports that uh, an ownership stake was potentially that's right. there,
1: which is—I don't think that's happened actually with that's any executive,
2: right? So um, now Masai could get that here in Toronto if he wanted it. So that wasn't enough to pull him away, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so uh, you know we, we have to we have to hope that that's that that's going to be the case. I mean, I think the Knicks are trying to get him now. Sure. Then um, you know, they're going to be people who want to pull him away because he's clearly uh, gifted at, mm-hmm. at what he does. So. Right, right. Um,
1: but I, I also think that you know maybe it's just something that people say. But I also feel like when Masai says things, I think he is genuine about it. I think he does feel a special kinship with Toronto. I think he uh, really appreciates, you know, based on his background and sort of the way he sort of came in as sort of an outsider, um, that Toronto is. An international city, Toronto is the only NBA franchise outside the United States, and and I think he feels a, a special bond here, uh, in Toronto. So I mean, as a Raptors fan, I just like, and as someone that works covering the Raptors, uh, please do everything in your power to keep Masai. Please. Oh.
2: Yeah, it's true. The, the The international thing is a big, big component. I think Masai does feel like he's a citizen of the world. I think, yes. and um, and there's no city in the NBA that reflects that better than Toronto. Right, for sure. And then um, last thing, one of the p- things that you wrote in the piece that really stuck out
1: to me, and I think it's very, very true about the Raptors, is that you said, quote, they were a team of Masai Ujiri's in mm-hmm. describing last year's team, and I probably this year's team as well. Um, what did you mean by that line and
2: sort of how so? Just just in terms of their resilience and their, their they have a high degree of character. These are all players who... Um, there aren't there aren't a lot of huge egos on this team. Mm-hmm. They are all people who uh, who work hard, and uh, you sense that they um, aren't frail. That their psychologies aren't frail. That they're strong. Mm-hmm. They're strong willed, strong minded, and um and really put it all out there. Right. And and you get that sense from from Messiah that he is that he is he is that he is a, he's a. He's just a really strong uh, individual, yeah. and um, uh, with with not a lot of ego, and, I, and so it just to me the team reflected his personality.
1: Yeah, and it, it always strikes me when you talk to guys like Pascal or Fevamblee, like they are very very good players in this league. They're literally champions, mm-hmm. uh, very accomplished guys. Um, but when you do talk to them, they're very very much down to earth. They are they're just guys that. You know, even Pascal, he signs a maximum contract. The next day, he's in the gym. He's working out extra as he always does. I and
2: mean, well, and that's Masai, really hold, that's right. And Masai holds him accountable. He like he expects that. Mm-hmm. Um, the team expects that from them, but but they they give it and they they do it uh, wholeheartedly.
1: Yeah, and um, you know, I'm sure you as a Raptors fan, I, I'm sure you you appreciate that. This team mm-hmm. is very very fun to watch. This year. it is, it is.
2: Yeah. I'm yeah. I, I almost like watching them this year more than last year, just because. Well, there's less pressure, there's mm, less anxiety, yeah. and and I'm thrilled at, at how they're doing with without Kawhi. Mm. They're more, they're obviously more than than Kawhi Leonard, and, yeah. um, and it's nice to see you know Pascal Siakam. Seeing how he's developing is really interesting.
1: Yeah, it's it's really unprecedented.
2: Anyway, Trevor, I've taken up so much of your time. You've been very very generous. Um, if you
1: haven't already read the piece, uh, you know definitely go read it. It is definitely. At least so far, the definitive Masai Jiri profile. There's been a couple other ones that, that have been written. I think there was one in Sports Illustrated like five or six years ago. Um, but when, this one is definitely the one you want to check out. So that's it's in uh, Toronto Life. Um, December issue. December issue. That's right. People still have magazines. Absolutely. Yeah, there you go. And it's online as well. And it's online. So thank you so much uh, for joining the show. Is there anything else that you want to maybe plug or... Shout out! Sure. Well, I mean, you, you uh, have written many novels my, and things like that. And yeah, and my most successful. recent
2: my most recent book is The Whiskey King, which is a nonfiction um, about gangsters uh, in Hamilton and Toronto in the 1920s and 30s during Prohibition. Uh, during Prohibition, that's okay. right. And um, and it also there's a, it's twin narratives, so it's about two individuals: Rocco Perry, okay, who was the gangster, and Frank Zaneth, who was the very first undercover Mountie in Canada. Okay, and his sort of uh, efforts. Over the years to to get Rocco. Mm. Uh, it's a fascinating story, and uh, it's by uh, you know by far my most successful book. So um, definitely check that out, The Whiskey King.
1: That sounds amazing. That sounds great. I,
2: I feel like not enough stories are written. I was just talking to someone else about
1: this. I feel like not enough stories are written about the history of Toronto and this region. And I loved I, I love reading even like small. I don't know if you read. This is like I don't even know if it was like a very. Famous book, the, the Secret Mitzvahs of Lucio Burke or something like that. Ah, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So it's just like stories
2: of just, you know, I, I love reading about like 1930s Toronto and different, different ways it's of a very and, There's a rich history in this yeah. area and, you know, people don't think of, of um, Ontario as having been uh, a place where there was a, you know, a gangland war mm-hmm, in yeah. the 1920s and 30s. But it happened here before it happened in Chicago. And, uh, there was a lot of money being made here and right. it was, Rocco Perry was famous, mm-hmm. uh, and his wife, Bessie, when she died, uh, 30,000 people came to her, uh, funeral. Wow. Uh, she, you know, it was a big, big deal. They were, they were huge uh, players in this, in the life of, of this region. Right. Well, uh, Trevor, thanks
1: again for coming on the podcast. And uh, once again, thank you to our sponsor, KFC. And uh, as for the podcast, I'll be back next week with another very, very special guest.
2: Thank you.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.